0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, we won't start out tonight in Luke 19, the text that was just read for us, we'll start in Matthew 21. While you're turning there, we introduced ourselves this morning to parables from our study in Mark chapter 4, we asked what a parable is and why did Jesus speak in parables? And Sunday school teachers, I hope if uh, you were not able to hear that this morning, you'll get a chance to tune in uh, and listen as we'll continue to build on that in the weeks ahead. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, here is what we might consider to be a kind of parable. Matthew chapter 21, look with me in verse 18. Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. His disciples have welcomed him into the city with palm branches, with their cloaks on the ground in front of him. They have been calling him the chosen one. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then that night, Jesus leaves them and went out of the city into Bethany. You remember Bethany where Lazarus lived. He perhaps stayed at Lazarus' house. And he lodged there. Now notice verse 18. Perhaps this is a story that has always confused you. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. He was hungry. He needed some breakfast. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Have you ever come across this story and said, what on earth does this mean? I mean, just picture yourself. You're one of Jesus' disciples. You're walking with him. Perhaps Jesus had commented that he needed some breakfast. He was hungry, and he says, there's a fig tree ahead, and it's got leaves on it. So he walks up to it like he's going to pluck a fig to eat, and he sees nothing, and he says, no one eat fruit of you here forever. And the fig tree dies. Jesus wasn't a hothead. We know that. We know that Jesus wasn't prone to getting hangry. Now, how do we know that? Because he went 40 days without food in the wilderness under temptation. He's not a guy who just lost his temper and got irritated like some of us do when we need some food. So, what's going on here? Well, Jesus, yes, is demonstrating something to his disciples about faith. He goes on to explain to them, if you had faith like this, you could say to a mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. So yes, there is a lesson here, but it seems to be a parable. Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem is swollen with people at Passover time, they have been praising Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David. It's like a fig tree with a bunch of green leaves on it. And Jesus has come up to it expecting fruit. And what does he see? He sees nothing in Jerusalem that is truly an indication of divine fruit. And just as Jesus looked at that fig tree and said, let there be no fruit on you from henceforth, forever and the tree died in the same way this parable I think the best way to understand it is that Jesus is acting out a parable for his disciples about Jerusalem you say is that really the case well remember how Jesus' ministry started when John the Baptist proclaimed before him in Matthew chapter 3 what did John the Baptist say he said to those people who came to be baptized of him he said the axe is laid to the root of the tree Any tree that is not bringing forth good fruit is what? It's cut down, and it's cast into the fire. That was the warning from the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. And now at the end of his earthly ministry, he comes to a physical tree that has the promise of fruit, but no actual fruit on it. And his response is to utterly render it barren forever. Execute judgment on that tree as a picture of what is happening to the city of Jerusalem. Now, I start here because this morning we looked at this subject of why Jesus spoke to the people in parables. And if you were here this morning, if you'll listen to that sermon later this week, you'll see we concluded it was not because Jesus was a good storyteller. It was not because he was intending to give a good illustration that everyone would be able to come into and make it easier to get truth. Everyone left Jesus' parables confused, his disciples included. Not only that, Even commentators today don't agree on what what his parables mean. It's not about that. Jesus said in in what we read today in Mark chapter 4 that why does he speak to them in parables? So that seeing, they don't see. They see, but they don't perceive. In hearing, they hear, but they don't understand. Why? Lest they should be convert and be forgiven. What is it? Jesus gave parables intentionally so that people didn't see. Intentionally so that people didn't understand. They were intentionally designed to be concealing instead of revealing. And yet in it was exactly the dividing line of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus said to them, listen, if you have ears to hear, hear. And those who had ears to hear didn't understand and came to him and said, Jesus, will you explain to us this parable? And they heard. What was Jesus' parables doing to those who had ears? It was inviting them in. It was saying, come here. Come, I will, I am the key to this problem. What about those who were content to have a story that they didn't understand? Those who were content to just say, Well, here's an illustration, I don't really understand it, but that's fine. They walked away. And what was it? Hearing, they did not hear, and seeing, they did not see. And ultimately, what they heard was judgment against them. It was only confirming their blindness. It was only confirming their deafness. It was only confirming the insensitivity of their heart. It was judgment on them. Now, where am I going with this? Now, turn back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Jesus has come to the city of Jerusalem, a city in which judgment is coming a city that has been condemned. Jesus already, the ax has been laid to the root of the tree. Like that fig tree, Jerusalem is condemned to divine judgment, and Jesus lays out what that judgment is going to be. Now, how does Jesus respond to a city that is condemned? How does Jesus respond to a people who are facing judgment? That's the subject of our message today that'll be titled Christ and a Condemned City. Christ and a Condemned City. And I want to look and see what Jesus's character is when facing a condemned city and what lessons we might learn for ourselves today. Let's look first of all at a city facing Judgment. Why was this a condemned city? It was a city facing judgment. Well, let's pick it up here in verse number 37. And when he was come nigh, n- near to the city of Jerusalem, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives... So he is now on the outskirts of Jerusalem, about to enter into the city. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And listen to verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. What was the reaction of Jesus' disciples? praising him, rejoicing. They were thinking that the king was now here to overthrow Rome. The king is now here to bring about a great military and political victory. Here is our political champion. Well, he wasn't that. He was coming into the city to die. And they sure didn't understand that. Not even his own disciples fully understood that. Well, what was the reaction of the Pharisees? They couldn't believe that people were chanting, here's Hosanna to the son of David. Here's the Messiah. Here's the anointed one. Save now, save now. They were so horrified, they went to Jesus and said, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. In fact, perhaps some of these same voices that were chanting Hosanna on this Palm Sunday only several days later may have been chanting, crucify him, crucify him in the streets. Jesus knew all this. He had told his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, I'm going up to be crucified. I'm going up to be betrayed. I'm going up to be murdered by the chief priests. Jesus went into a city knowing that it was rejecting him and that that week, it was the last week of his pre-resurrection ministry. How would you respond in the last week of your life? How would you respond to entering into a city that you knew was going to reject you and hang you on a cross in a matter of days? That's this city. Not only that, this city that had personally rejected him was also a city that was facing judgment. Notice with me in verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round. They're gonna surround you and keep thee in on every side. They're not gonna let anyone out. And shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now, what's he saying here? Start with Verse 42. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are they hid from thine eyes. What's he saying? Well, he's saying a couple things. One is he's pointing out their fault here. Now, notice the way that our King James provides this translation. The, if you had known the things which belong unto thy peace, but notice our words which belong in our Bibles are italicized. They're not there in the original Greek text. They're added by our translators to try to bring out the meaning as it is viewed. Actually, if you would see this, you you could equally render this if you knew the things that make your peace or the conditions of your peace. Jesus may be saying to them, if you only knew how bad things are going to get in the future, he may not be saying that. It would be equally appropriate to interpret what is being said here is, if you only knew the things, the conditions of peace that I've made you right now. If you only knew the conditions of peace that I as the king have offered to your peace, but they have been hid from your eyes. They have been hid from your eyes. Remember we talked about this morning, the blindness that come on those who reject the light that has been given them. The die was now cast for Jerusalem. There was no coming back. They had rejected their Messiah. And the light was now hid from their eyes. There was no turning back. Notice what he goes on to say. The days shall come upon thee. The die's been cast. What's he talking about? I probably don't need to tell you. He's talking about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans. Now, you could study this out. This is not the focus of the message, but you'd be able to see the riots that took place around A.D. 66, about 30 years or so, a little more than 30 years after Christ's crucifixion. You would see Rome sending an army to crush this revolt in Judea. You would see, just like Jesus prophesied in A.D. 70 or so, a, a wall being built around the city battlements around this heavily fortified city starvation imposed it said that the roman um, governor the roman government allowed people into the city for passover swelling the ranks of the city for worship and then refused to let them out why because it knew that the city the the food and the water of the city would then be would be um, would be brought down more quickly. Starvation, bodies piling up everywhere. Uh, Ultimately, they breached the city wall. Ultimately, they burned the temple to the ground. They utterly destroyed the city, literally raising it to the ground. Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian who was alive at this time period, is said to have estimated that about one million Israelites died. One million people. I mean, can you imagine? One million. Many um, others, um, uh, as many as I I read, up up to 100,000. I haven't, of course, confirmed it myself, but these people taken into captivity, young men taken to be gladiators in Rome, just the incredible destruction. Listen to what Josephus says. Other than one wall... He, he's talking about, he says, but for all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was no, left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. So entire was his destruction. Josephus says, other than these areas they left standing, you wouldn't even have been able to tell it was, had been a city. He said, this was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind. He said, for the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. It was a city that was condemned, and this is exactly what Jesus is prophesying about 40 years in advance of what would be happening to that city. He knew it. He saw it. It was condemned. Here's a judgment, and it was at their fault. Notice in verse 44. They shall lay thee even to the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knew not the time of thy visitation. You didn't know when the king was coming. You didn't know when the one who was your Messiah, your chosen one of God was coming. And because you didn't know that, your city is left to you desolate. It will be destroyed to the ground. That was what Jesus knew about this city. It had personally rejected him. It was doomed to complete destruction. And it was doomed as a judgment for the fault of the people who inhabited it. Incredible. And that's why I think it's so powerful not just to look at the city facing judgment, but to look at the actions of the Savior who was viewing it. Notice what the Savior did. Start first of all in verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He wept over it. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, the word here does not suggest tears that you are dabbing at your eye. Scripture, you remember in, in John chapter 11 when it said that Jesus wept at the funeral of Lazarus at the, at the burial place? The idea of that word is you're just weeping. You're just crying. This word means sobbing. This word even has the idea of Wailing. Like you're crying with a noise. You are making noise. You are sobbing. If you think about that, a city that is personally rejecting him and will hang him on a cross that week, a city that is doomed to destruction at its own fault, Jesus comes and looks at the city and sobs over it and says, if thou hadst known, if only you had known the conditions, or what would bring about your peace. What else did he do? Notice verse 45. Immediately after he says this, what's the next thing we read? And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now think about this activity. Jesus has already done this once in his early ministry in the book of John. We've seen him clear out the temple once. And now he comes at the end of his ministry knowing that the city is rejecting him. Knowing that the city is doomed. Knowing that there is no prospect of success. Friends, this is not, if you will, a gracious invitation to them. This is judgment. This is the judgment of saying, I have come to the fig tree and there's no fruit in this temple. What is it? It's corruption. People effectively uh, 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 charging money for sacrifices, getting themselves rich, making merchandise of sincere worshipers coming to offer things To God, the required sacrifices, this is a den of thieves and judgment is issued on that temple as Jesus clears them out. What would happen only a few short days later when Jesus was on the cross? What happened inside the temple when Jesus died? The veil of the temple was rent in two that separated the holy of holies from that which was outside. The the temple was done in God's economy. Forever, really, forever. It was done. But yet only a few days before, Jesus had gone in and pronounced his judgment to clear it out. But not only that, notice verse 47. And he taught daily in the temple. He taught But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him and go over the chapter divide. And it came to pass that on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. Here's a man who was being personally rejected and hung on a cross. A city that was being destroyed. It was condemned. The die had already been cast for whom there was no prospect of success anymore, their own fault had left them under judgment, certain final judgment. And what does Jesus do? He comes and looks at the city and he sobs over it. He goes into the temple and exercises God's judgment against the false worship that was there. And he taught and preached the gospel in the very temple that would be destroyed. Now, What I want to do here as we close is simply ask this What do we see about this kind of Jesus? There's a city that's condemned, there's a Savior that is not stopping, that is continuing. And then finally, let's see the character of this King, the character of our Savior. Notice, first of all, his compassion. Notice his compassion. Why did Jesus sob when he came to the temple? Why did he sob when he looked over a city? He sobbed because of his compassion. But what I want to notice is this. His compassion was not connected to the fault of the people that were in the city. His mercy was not contingent on whether those people... Deserved judgment or not. Now you say, well, why is this? Because what is true of us as human beings from the very first day we are born and continuing on as long as we have mental acuity? We are absolutely focused on justice, on fairness, on what is right. I've seen that with young kids. You don't need to teach kids what they perceive to be fair or not. Children are utter, are, they have, just have a nose for fairness. That's not fair. I didn't teach them whether something's fair or not. They just looked at what their sister got, and they looked at they got what they got, and they said, that's not fair. For every child, this sense of justice, this sense of fairness, this sense of what's right and what's wrong is something that is endemic. It is just something about who they are. And notice here, a city that is about to hang him on a cross. A city that is ultimately in deserving of judgment. And Jesus looks at them and sobs over their condition. Now, It leads me back to the very character of Jesus in the first place. The very character of Jesus is one whose mercy is not toward those who deserve it. His mercy and his compassion is toward those who don't deserve it. Why does Jesus have compassion on you and on me? Why did his mercy extend to us? Because we deserved it? No. We were his enemies. We were under the thrall of the devil and his works. We were slaves to sin. The mercy of Jesus Christ that put him to the cross was independent of our merit, and it was not motivated or limited by personal rejection. This is why Jesus can say to us with complete credibility, love your enemies. Do good to them that treat you wrongly. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Why why does he have moral authority to say that? Because that's what he did. The people who were going to put him on a cross, his mercy was overwhelming to the point of sobs for their ultimate state as a city, for the judgment that was befalling them. Jesus loved independent of whether he would be personally rejected and independently of the kind of fault of those who were about to receive judgment. That was his character. But not only that, his character was not just one of compassion. His character was one of integrity. Why did he go to the temple and clear it out? Why did he go to the temple and continue teaching and continue preaching the gospel when he knew that was the last week that he would be here before his resurrection? He would be be crucified? Why? For the same reason he went up to the fig tree and pronounced judgment against it as a parable because his father had a calling for him to do. And it didn't matter whether that would appear to have success in worldly or earthly terms or not. It did not matter whether people would listen to him and respond. It did not matter. His father had called him to pronounce judgment against this city and against this place. And so with integrity and decisiveness and even in the face of societal and cultural discomfort, he acted simply because it was right. His integrity was not limited by the prospects of success. All he needed to know was that God had called him to it and therefore he would accomplish it. He would fulfill it to the very end. Now that means he's faithful. He's compassionate. He's merciful. And he's faithful. His integrity will take it to the very end. And this is what I want to pull out for us tonight as, first of all, an encouragement. The encouragement is simply this. If Jesus acts so mercifully and faithfully to a city that is condemned to destruction, how merciful and faithful do you think he will be to you who he has redeemed from judgment and claimed for himself? Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 says, where you probably see where I'm going with this. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He is merciful and he is faithful. He is merciful because his compassion extends to those who don't deserve it. He is faithful because he is entirely committed in integrity to the calling that God has for him. Friends, if he sobs over the coming destruction of Jerusalem, how merciful do you think he feels to your difficulties this week? How merciful do you think in compassion he is toward you whom he has purchased with his own blood, who he has spared from the judgment to come, in whom you have no condemnation now between you and God, in whom there is peace, eternal peace by the blood of Christ. How merciful do you think he is to you if his merciful tears flowed for those who would soon hang him on a cross? What excuse do we have not to go to our merciful high priest with all of our burdens every single day and say, Jesus, take these. Jesus, I'm coming to the throne of grace to find mercy and to get grace to help in time of need. What excuse do we have? He has promised and shown himself to be a merciful high priest. You say, what about his integrity? What about his faithfulness. Friends, if his faithfulness to complete the calling of God was completely independent of whether people would respond, of whether there would be earthly success before him, he was simply fulfilling the calling, how much more will he be faithful when your destination has been set ahead of time? When you have been assured if you will of success in your spiritual life, those whom he has foreknown, he has predestined, he has set the destination ahead of time to be conformed to the image of his son your success if you will is assured in him because Jesus says those whom the father has given me I have not lost one of Because we are confident that he which has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is faithful to his father's calling, no matter the prospects of success in a condemned city, how much more will he be faithful to you whom he has purchased and and set uh, set the destination ahead of time for your growth into the image of himself? What excuse do we have to doubt his mercy? What excuse do we have to doubt his faithfulness? What excuse do we have to act in unbelief toward his integrity to carry out his high priestly mission on our behalf and ensure our standing before him and the forgiveness of our sins for eternity? We have none because he's shown us what he is in a condemned city. How much more will he be that way in a redeemed person like you or me. Notice this is the comfort we can take from this example of Jesus. But lastly, I want us to see the example, the example of Christian, of Christ-like character that I think should be an encouragement to us. If Jesus is merciful and faithful in a condemned city, friends, what about us? Does my mercy look like his? Or is my mercy so often contingent on someone else's fault or lack thereof? Have you ever passed by someone on a street corner and seen them in a really, truly pitiful and tragic condition and you slammed, you just closed the door of compassion because you said, I wonder if they deserved it? Has your husband or your wife Your parents or your children found themselves in a difficult spot, in a dangerous area, in a place where they are receiving a reward for their conduct. And our response is to say, well, they kind of deserved it. I can't be that merciful. I can't be that compassionate for them. They deserve it. They brought it upon themselves Friends, look at Jesus looking at a city that in every way brought it on themselves. Every single way brought it on themselves by rejecting him, by not not realizing the time of their visitation. And his response to them is not to cluck his tongue and say, too bad, so sad, you should have accepted me. His response is to sob. To break down in an act of mercy and love simply based on the intrinsic value of their humanity, people for whom he made and people for whom he would die. Our mercy and our compassion should never be contingent on someone else's blamelessness. Our mercy and compassion for our loved ones around us should never be based on whether they deserve it or not if we are manifesting a Christ-like heart, a Christ-like spirit, our mercy, even to the point of tears, will be based on what Jesus says about them, not on what they have deserved or not deserved by their conduct. Does our mercy reflect the merciful heart of a faithful and merciful high priest? But not just that, There's something about Christ's integrity, about his calling. Does our faithfulness manifest a Christ-like character? As we said, Jesus' faithfulness, his integrity, his calling was not based on prospects of success. And do you know how easy it is for us to do the same thing? To look at a Sunday school class or to look at a neighbor or to look at a family member and kind of wipe our hands and say, you know, this case might just be too difficult. I don't know that I'm ever going to get through to them. It looks like they've kind of turned off for the last time. Do you recognize the faithfulness of Jesus who recognized a city that was utterly condemned and said, I'm still going to on, keep, keep on preaching and I'm going to still keep on teaching in the temple that's going to be laid bare to the ground. I'm going to do it because it's right. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was the one who also said, don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn again and rend you. Jesus was the one who said, I'm going to teach you in parables. I'm not going to teach you directly as I've done before. So there is a point in which we may modify our presentation or we may even in a certain situation remain quiet. But here's the point. All of it is under the integrity of our calling, whether or not we seem to have a prospect of success I was reminded as I thought of this message as a little phrase I've heard in the sports world before play to the final whistle play to the final whistle do you know what that means there are some players that their team gets down by 20 points and they quit they stop playing why would I risk getting injured my team's gonna lose anyway Who cares if they lose by 40 points or if they lose by 20 points or they lose by 10 points? The game is over. It's time to pack it in. But there are some other people who simply just play to the final whistle. They know that they're not simply about whether they're going to win or lose, but whether they're meeting their calling as a player in that particular game. And so they keep on working and they keep on hustling independent of what the score is simply because they've been taught to play to the final whistle. And I think of Jesus, a man in the last week of his pre-resurrection ministry, knowing that the end was short for him, knowing that the people would not listen, knowing that the temple would be destroyed, knowing that this was a condemned city, and still teaching, and still preaching, and still weeping, and still acting in his father's name. Why? Because he's faithful and because he plays to the final whistle. And friend, wherever you're called today, whatever your job is, whatever your ministry is, wherever God has placed you around people in your life, I want to say to you tonight, play to the final whistle. Play to the final whistle with integrity. Play to the final whistle to carry out your calling. Whether or not you're going to be received, whether or not success looks certain or whether success looks doomed, simply do it out of a heart like Christ's to be faithful to the calling that you have received to the very end. Look at Jesus. How did Jesus respond in a condemned city? With complete mercy that wasn't dependent on whether people deserved it or not, on complete integrity that didn't depend on whether he would appear to succeed or whether he would appear to fail. My encouragement to each one of us tonight is manifest the character of Christ and rely on him who is both perfectly merciful and perfectly faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for Your word, we thank you for how it reveals Christ to us. Father, what a challenge this is, but what a comfort to see Jesus the Savior who facing personal rejection did not let it diminish his mercy and his compassion, who facing the destruction, the certain condemnation of this city did not let it change his integrity, did not let it stop. His compassion. And Father, you call us to the same kind of Christ like heart, a heart that overwhelms with mercy and compassion, even for those who don't deserve it, that overwhelms with a commitment to your cause and to your calling, no matter the prospects of success. And I pray, Father, that tonight you would stir in our hearts. You have given us the very life of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Our mercy doesn't depend on our own human characteristics. It depends on whether we walk in the Spirit. And so I pray tonight, Father, that we would hear his voice and rely on our comforter, our helper, to bring the very character of Christ to us and live it through us. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.